All right, peoples, I'm going to open us in prayer, and we will jump right in. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the saving work of Christ. As we consider this theme, help us to do so in light of your word in a way that affects our hearts to both know the truth and to worship you accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, peoples, we're going to begin. We have, as usual, 50-something slides and precious little time uh, to get through them. But uh, welcome to November 7, 2021 Growth Session. This is our 19th installment of our Core Doctrines series, where we're walking through the Elder Affirmation of Faith. This is week one. <laughs> you guys are listening to a word I'm saying. How many teach? How many? How many? School teachers, if you've ever taught in a school classroom, ever, how many, uh, show of hands, please. I feel your pain. All right. Um, this is week one, biblical theology. We will take, Lord willing, next Sunday for historical, and then two weeks from today, practical theology under the glorious doctrine of the saving work of Christ. If you can see here, this is article seven of our elder affirmation of faith. Article seven reads, we believe that by his perfect obedience to God and by his suffering and death as the immaculate lamb of God, Jesus Christ obtained forgiveness of sins and the gift of perfect righteousness for all who trusted in God prior to the cross and all who would trust in Christ thereafter. Through living a perfect life and dying in our place, the just for the unjust, Christ absorbed our punishment, appeased the wrath of God against us, vindicated the righteousness of God in our justification, and remove the condemnation of the law against us. That is a power-packed mouthful of truth. 7.2. We believe that the atonement of Christ for sin warrants and impels a universal offering of the gospel to all persons so that to every person it may be truly said, God gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Quick historical uh, interlude as I'm reading. One time, Charles Spurgeon, who preached in this cavernous metropolitan tabernacle, 10,000-seat auditorium, got up in what he thought was a vacant auditorium early, early on a Sunday morning and quoted that verse. The janitor, who was up in the corner of the balcony, heard him and was converted. So that's literally what this uh, statement is saying. You can say this to any person, anytime, truly, and uh, God can save. Whosoever will may come for cleansing at this fountain, and whoever does come, Jesus will not cast out. And then 7.3, we believe, moreover, that the death of Christ did obtain more than the bona fide offer of the gospel for all. It also obtained the omnipotent 
new covenant mercy of repentance and faith for God's elect. Christ died for all, but not for all in the same way. In his death, Christ expressed a special covenant love to his friends, his sheep, his bride. For them, he obtained the infallible and effectual working of the Holy Spirit to triumph over their resistance and bring them to saving faith. This is our Elder Affirmation of Faith, Article 7, on the saving work of Christ. And there are four truths that I just want to pull out of point one, two, and three that we just read to lay before you today to consider, to stir many of you up by way of reminder, or perhaps to introduce to you for the first time biblical categories that, as I prayed, would not only be for our mind's instruction, but for our heart's affection. All good, theo- uh, let's say this, all theology, that's true thoughts of God, are meant to lead to doxology, true worship of God. So here's four considerations. The first two come from the first point of the article, the third from the second point, and the fourth from the third point. The active and passive obedience of Jesus, that was in the affirmation, I'll try to show you where. The, pe- the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement the general gospel call, and then finally definite atonement and the effectual gospel call. So first, if you've ever heard preachers, teachers, theologians, books, authors, podcasts talk about the active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus, they're they're using verbal categories, things Jesus did and things that were done to him, like an active and a passive verb. So first, the active obedience of Jesus. What does this doctrine refer to? Um, Let me go back. The affirmation said, notice the highlighted portions, we believe that by his perfect obedience to God and by his suffering and death, well, there's active and passive, And then you skip down to the bottom, yellow, through living a perfect life, there's active, and dying in our place, there's passive. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if Jesus would have died at age 12 when he was holding the inquisition with the the scholars in the temple, would he have been an adequate redeemer? Well, he's the eternal son of God, he's the second person of the Trinity, even when he's 12 years old in his incarnation. What about if they would have thrown him off that cliff? When he evaded their uh, intentions, I think in John 8. Or what if the Jews would have been able to kill him when he cried out in the temple, everyone who thirsts, come to me. Would that have sufficed for our salvation? What we're saying here is the Scriptures teach that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness through perfectly obeying the law completely. And then, as a perfect sacrifice, having accumulated the righteousness God requires through his obedience, then he passively died in our stead. Here are some texts that underline the active obedience of Jesus, Matthew 3. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him, but John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way 
it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Jesus had to obey the Father in this particular way. As part of his act of obedience, Jesus says definitively in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to carry out all that's required in God's perfect law. He had to obey every, every jot and tittle of the law, every minute detail of the law. In John 8, Jesus cries, this is, this is a bottomless verse. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do, there's his act of obedience, the things that are pleasing to him. There's two types of obedience. There's the active, there's the obedience to the things that God has commanded, that's active obedience, but there's another way to sin, to not have done what God has commanded, that would be a sin of omission. What Jesus is saying here is that he never sinned a sin of commission, doing things God forbids, and he never sinned a sin of omission, not doing things God commands. He, he always did everything God commands. That's his act of obedience. John 17, just before he's crucified, Lord Jesus prays, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. He brought that life of perfect righteousness, full obedience to the cross as the payment God required for sinners like us. There's his active obedience. Let's turn to his passive obedience. And this refers to his passion. We're just entering this portion in John's gospel in our sermon series. We spent about one year in the first 33 years of Jesus's life. And we're going to spend about another year in the last week of his life. The sermon series will go about a year from now. All of it covers one week. And that's intentional because John lays the accent there himself. In Jesus's passive obedience, we find multitudes of passages that talk about how this act of Jesus's allowing himself to be crucified is the, the uh, obedience that wins our redemption, Romans 5. So then as through one transgression, that's Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, that's the death of Jesus, there resulted justification of life to all men, for as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, even, through, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And here he's talking about the obedience of passively allowing himself to be crucified. Furthermore, First Peter and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. That has to do with spiritual healing. But there it is, in his body on the cross. That's a reference to his passive obedience. There are, again, a multitude of verses that underline this, this glorious theme. So in point one, we saw the passive obedience of Jesus. There's something else I want to draw out from the affirmation of faith from 7.1. And that is, have you heard this phrase, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement? That's just littered across theology books 
It even comes out in some sermons here at Grace Church. What does this doctrine teach? What does it mean? It is precision terminology. It means something glorious. Wayne Grudem says, there are four needs that we have as sinners that are met by the death of Jesus in our stead. Four, Four things we need. Number one, we deserve to die as the penalty of our sin. Number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath against all sin. Number three, we are separated from God by our sins. And number four, we are in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. So Christ's death meets our four greatest needs, let me just specify. If, number one, we deserve to die, Hebrews 9.26, Christ is our sacrifice. If, number two, we deserve to bear God's wrath, 1 John 4.10, Christ is our propitiation. If, number three, we are separated from God by our sins, number four, second Corinthians, uh, number three, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, Christ is our reconciliation. And number four, if we're in bondage to sin in the kingdom of Satan, we have to have somebody buy us back, redeem us unto God. Colossians 1.13, he's our redemption. This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. It is so massively, radically biblical. said it this way in the yellow, Christ absorbed our punishment, appeased the wrath of God against us, vindicated the righteousness of God in our justification, and removed the condemnation of the law against us. That's a lot of words to say the doctrine of penal substitution. Let's continue to think about it. Grudem writes, Christ's death was, was penal in that he bore our penalty. Where'd you go? Oh, well. He, He bore our penalty when he died. His death was a substitution in that he was a substitute for us when he died. This has been the orthodox understanding of the atonement held by evangelical theologians in contrast to other views that attempt to explain the atonement apart from the idea of the wrath of God or payment of the penalty of our sins. There's a theologian named Christian Smith, I think is, I may be, I may be attributing this to the wrong person, so if so, scratch everything I just said. I'm not exactly sure who said it, so I don't want to attribute bad theology to the wrong person. There's a, uh, there, there are theologians who have espoused the idea of divine child abuse. Oh, you're saying the father? poured his wrath on his son for crimes he didn't commit? That's, that's child abuse. Well, that's a, that's a terrible spin on a glorious doctrine that Jesus did absorb the wrath we deserved. It was from the plans of eternity, the eternal counsels of God for it to be so. And it's in no way abuse. It's in fact redemption. It's called substitution. It's a glorious doctrine. Let's continue to see it biblically. In him, we have redemption through his blood. That's the payback. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, how so? He, 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 put, him place, he put himself in our stead. 1 John 1.29, John the Baptist describes Jesus this way. He saw Jesus coming, said to him, uh, and to him he said, let me back up. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Against the doctrine of somebody else bearing the penalty and being the substitute. Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, here's purchase, here's redemption, which he bought, which he paid for, with his own blood. I have totally lost my entire screen. I have literally no idea where it went. Uh, hey, there it goes. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. The next verse tells you the reason that no charge will ever stand against you from Satan, from any other accuser, from your own heart. Here's the reason. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The reason you cannot be condemned in God's presence if you stand in Christ by faith is because Jesus took your place. He died in your stead. Um, that should say 7.2 up there. Uh, no, that should say 7.1. That's right, but it's, it's number two. But now I'm going to move to our third consideration, which is a, a more challenging doctrine, I admit. I myself have wrestled for now a couple of decades with this doctrine, and I still am confounded by it, and I totally believe it. It's the doctrine of definite atonement. Let me back up to notes now that I have my screen back. Let me say something about penal substitution. Here's a Grudem quote. I'm going to quote, quote now a, 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 a Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, and then I'm fast forward to definite atonement. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says, the doctrine of a vicarious substitutionary atonement is the only doctrine of atonement found in the Bible, substantiated by scores of passages References I have here, Leviticus 17.11 would be an Old Testament example. Israel understood that to bear sin meant enduring the consequences or penalty for sin. Numbers 14.33 and on and on and on. The same penal substitution is evident in the working principle of the Messiah's atoning sacrifice. He is the victim's substitute to whom is transferred the suffering due the sinner. The penalty, having thus been borne vicariously, the suppliant, the one who goes to him with supplication, help, save, is fully pardoned. There are so many proof texts for this. Leviticus 1.4, Leviticus 5.14-19, Leviticus 16, Isaiah 53, Romans 3, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Peter 2. I lay that foundation so that we can go to this really perplexing 
I believe, true, biblically radically true, doctrine of definite atonement. Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's a has done it promise. That's not a might will do it suggestion. He did release us. A transaction happened when Jesus died. And the Father will not do the legal category of double jeopardy. He will not punish two people for the same crime. He cannot do it. It's against his nature because that is the definition of injustice. Two people can't pay for the same penalty. And the judge be just in the process. And Revelation 1.5 tells us, if you want to use an illustration, that your faith does not turn on like a light switch the power of the cross. That's not how the cross becomes powerful in your life. The opposite is actually true biblically. There's so many verses like Revelation 1.5, meaning the cross is so powerful that God guarantees the light switch of your faith will be turned on. Jesus paid for you and all your sins, past, present, and future. He released us from our sins by his blood. <clears throat> Romans 5 says, I should have changed the title uh, to definite atonement. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's a has done it statement much more having been reconciled, it is done, we shall be saved by his life. You see the texts that are cited there below in 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians, which continue to underline this glorious idea of uh, penal substitutionary atonement and, and definite atonement. I have some more slides I'm just now realizing on definite atonement to come, so... Yeah, let me press forward. <clears throat> the general gospel call. Some people who have heard what I've said to you for about the last 15 minutes have, have uh, locked into logic instead of theologic, God's logic. And it'll get us all in trouble. We start using our brain instead of God's brain. Uh, Isaiah 55 says God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts as heaven is higher than the earth. If you just start trying to put your ducks in a row logically, many people have heard what I've said for about the last 15 minutes and have concluded wrongly that there's therefore no need to evangelize. And people who hold the Reformed tradition of soteriology are constantly being accused in every generation of not believing in prayer, not believing in evangelism. Just look at the history of world missions. That's such a nonsensical accusation because all the history of missions is being led by people who believe what I've been saying for the last 15 minutes. Pick your favorite missionary. They totally stand where what I've been laying out to you for the last few minutes. Instead of being a detriment to zeal for evangelism, it's actually the fuel for evangelism. The reason we should give the gospel to everybody is because God is the only one who knows those for whom Jesus has paid. 
We don't know that. That's my I gotta stop talking in a minute alarm. All right, so let's talk about the general gospel call. We should offer the gospel indiscriminately to every human. Look at the yellow part of our affirmation of faith. Um, we believe that the atonement of Christ for sin warrants and impels a universal offering of the gospel to all persons. This isn't just like theological ideas. This is practical application. We should be commending him whom we cherish to everybody near and far. We must tell the gospel to all. Biblically, we've already looked at John 3.16. You all know that beloved verse and oh, that we would herald it loud and clear to everybody near and far. What about Acts 1.8? This is the outline of the book of Acts. This verse. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, my martyrs in Jerusalem, that's near, Judea, that's the next concentric circle. Samaria, that's the next concentric circle. And even to the remotest part of the earth, that's the furthest concentric circle. The gospel just must go out because we're witnesses of the Savior. The Great Commission, the gospel must go. The risen Jesus tells us to all the nations, all the peoples, every ethnicity, ponte ta ethne, all the nations. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus makes an astounding statement, and I think it hinges on the word this, <laughs> this gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the perseverance of the saints, that's the previous passage, the, 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 the gospel that promises those whom God saves, he will sanctify and preserve faithful until the end. If anybody defects on Jesus, they didn't have this gospel, and then Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world, meaning the true gospel, in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So let's go to our final consideration. This is where I said I have more slides on definite atonement. This is kind of the deep end of the theological pool, and I confess to you all that this is, uh, you know, in many ways, such a conundrum, so perplexing. I do not have this figured out. I do believe this is biblically true. The bona fide offer of the gospel is for all. It also, yellow, obtained the omnipotent new covenant mercy of repentance and faith for God's elect. I believe that's biblically radically true. Down at the bottom, for them, he, Jesus, obtained the infallible and effectual working of the Holy Spirit to triumph over their resistance and bring them to saving faith. That's what's known as the doctrine of definite atonement and the effectual call. So the general gospel call goes to the whole world. But as that net is cast, God is, by his spirit, hunting people's hearts through the preaching of the gospel and doing John 6, all the time. He may be doing it right now, for all I know. He is drawing people to Christ. As we just cast the net of the gospel to the world, God is hunting the hearts of those for whom Jesus died. Grudem writes, God's purposes in redemption are agreed upon within the Trinity, and they are certainly accomplished. Those whom God planned to save are the same people for whom Christ also came to die. And to those same people, the Holy Spirit will certainly apply the benefits of Christ's redemptive work, even awakening their faith. Let me give you a citation that's not on here if your brain's not exploding already. One of the differences, uh, one theologian writes, uh, this is Grudem again, 
One of the differences between Reformed theologians and other Catholic and Protestant theologians has been the question of the extent of the atonement. The question may be put this way. When Christ died on the cross, did he pay for the sins of the entire human race or only for the sins of those who he knew would ultimately be saved? The Reformed view is, and I quote, if Christ's death actually paid for the sins of every person who ever lived, then there's no penalty left for anyone to pay. And it necessarily follows that all people will be saved without exception. The doctrine of uh, universalism, universal atonement. For God could not condemn to eternal punishment anyone whose sins are already paid for. That would be demanding double payment, and it would therefore be unjust. What I mentioned a minute ago, the, the idea of double jeopardy. Does the Bible teach this? Yes. It teaches that Jesus actually paid for some people. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus said, lays down his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus said. Or John 10, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Or in Acts 20, 28, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who, who, who is in view here? The, the church, the, the ecclesia. Or we can look at Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ, wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or John 15, 13. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. We sing at every members meeting, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. This is what we mean when we sing that glorious statement. This is what the author of the hymn meant when he wrote this line. Or we sing, uh, the, it's been called the Baptist anthem, O victory in Jesus, this is good theology. My Savior forever, he sought me and bought me, with his redeeming blood, he loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. That's actually the doctrine of definite atonement. The effectual call in our last consideration, uh, why am I out of order? Okay, uh, yeah, go with me here. Because Jesus paid in his death, for those whom the Father had given him from eternity. This is what we mean in 7.3. For them he obtained the infallible and effectual working of the Spirit. God will effect the salvation of those for whom Jesus died. When Jesus was standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, this is a portrait of the effectual call. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And many... Preachers, theologians have said if he did not put a, a, a proper noun there, Lazarus, then every tomb in the universe uh, would have just burst open. He, he effectually called one man from death to life. And if he just said, everybody who's dead, come forward, every tomb would have opened in the whole world. John 6, 37, Jesus says unabashedly, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He will effect the redemption of those for whom Jesus died, as the gospel is generally scattered to the whole world. The golden chain of redemption in Romans 8.30 is a fact. It cannot, you can't break this golden chain. Every link is unbreakable 
These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you notice that's done, 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 done? There's no maybes. This is a fact. This is what Jesus paid for in his omnipotent blood. Acts 13.48, this, we have two more slides. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. What did they say? As many as, been, as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who, who believed? Those who had been appointed. By whom were they appointed? God. So the Jerusalem council is saying this. The, the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem are saying this sentence. When Peter gets back from Cornelius' house, and Peter's like, you guys aren't going to believe this. I went to this guy's house. It was an incredible situation where I got a vision while I was sitting on a rooftop in Joppa, and I went all the way to Cornelius, and I just preached the same gospel we've been preaching around here in Jerusalem, and God's been saving a bunch of Jews, and God saved them too. And when Peter gets done telling the story, all the Jewish Christian leaders say, do you see this? I see their job. You mean he, he, he's giving eternal life? Even to them, yes, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So there's agreement among all Christians. There's controversy in everything I've said today. But there's agreement on all of this by everybody who's a Christian. Not everybody will be saved. A free offer of the gospel can rightly be made to every person ever born. And Christ's death has infinite merit and is sufficient to pay the penalty of the sins of as many or as few as the Father and Son have decreed. No, nobody disagrees about that within Christendom and church history. So we should be humble. There's nothing we've done to earn our salvation. And we should evangelize. That's two, at least two applications. So we have 10 minutes before our next uh, Time begins, so I'm just going to conclude by saying next week, Jim will be leading us through the historical theology section, dealing with some of the controversies over everything I've said, and it's all been pretty controversial throughout church history. So you can be thinking and praying about that, looking at some of these passages that we've considered. But uh, let me pray, and that'll conclude our session. Father, as we seek to wade into the glorious, infinite, bottomless, brimless ocean of the saving work of Jesus, we feel like we're in the kiddie pool. We feel like we're ankle deep, and even there, we're mystified, we're confounded, our, our, our brains uh, spin so fast, smoke comes out of our ears, we can hardly keep up with this glorious revelation of what you've done in your Son for our salvation. And I pray, Lord, that those two applications at the very end would settle so deep in us. Humility. Why us, Lord? Why? Why have you had mercy on us? And evangelism. That we would intentionally, even aggressively, with winsome, humble love, tell all within earshot of the saving love of Jesus. Make it so, we pray in Jesus' name.